Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Hey, did you know that Walters has a podcast? The Walk on Over to Walters podcast. It's available on all of the usual podcast platforms. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the 0-1 on the way. Swing and a drive, hit deep to left field. Way back, going, going, and long gone goodbye. A three-run homer for Eugenio Suarez. Josiah Gray pays for the lack of command. The two walks come in front of a one-out three-run homer. And Seattle leads 3 to nothing. Runner goes the pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out with a slider. And the game is over. The Mariners have swept the doubleheader. And they have a 10-game winning streak. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, July 14th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, if you thought that the Nats finally not facing a National League East team would be just what the Nats needed to end their latest losing streak, uh, unfortunately, you were wrong. Uh, we on Wednesday had a day-night doubleheader between the Nationals and the Seattle Mariners at Nationals Park as a two-game series was played on a single day of the rainout on Tuesday night. It's funny, with the Nats this season, we had a five-game series played over four days. We now have had a two-game series played over one day, but the results of all of these series this season, not so good for our Nationals. Uh, they got swept in this doubleheader on Wednesday. Game one, a 6-4 loss. Game two, a 2-1 loss. You have two teams going in very different directions right now. The Nats have lost 12 of the team's last 13 games. The Mariners now have won 10 consecutive games, but it's not just about what happened on the field for the Nats on Wednesday. Uh, We got terrible news on Wednesday afternoon in between the two games of the doubleheader. It appears as if Tanner Rainey is done for the season and is going to need Tommy John surgery. Uh, This came out of nowhere, but this is in fact the case. There are a number of other Nats news items we're going to get to on this installment of the podcast, but Mark, as if the Nats needed this they now have this. One of their top relievers appears to be done for this season. It really is a big blow for them, Al. And I know you can say, hey, on a rebuilding team, how important is it to have a closer or not? But I think for a variety of reasons, this is you know close to the last thing any of them wanted to have happen. And like you said, it was out of the blue. There were no indications anything had gone wrong you know, previously. And in fact, the sense I get is that 
Rainey didn't even feel anything in his last appearance. That was Sunday in Atlanta when he threw two innings in the extra inning game. And it wasn't until the day after when he went to play catch that he started experiencing anything. And they checked him out and saw that he has a sprained elbow ligament. They're going to get a second opinion on it before they decide anything. But my understanding from a club source is that Tommy John surgery is very much on the table here. And my guess is they will have an answer you know, within a matter of days on that. And if that is the outcome of that, and again, we don't know for sure yet, but if that is the outcome, you're talking about not just him missing the rest of this season, but you're talking about him missing the first half of next season. And that's not good for anybody. So here's all you need to know. The Nats on Wednesday afternoon placed Rainey on the 60-day injured list. They're calling the ailment a right UCL sprain, but generally speaking, you initially place a guy on the 10-day IL or the 15-day IL if he's a pitcher, and then you transfer him to the 60-day IL. That They're initially putting him on the 60-day IL. I know that Davey Martinez told you guys during his post-game session on Wednesday night, hey, let's see what the doctor says. You wouldn't put him on the 60-day IL if you didn't think he was about to need Tommy John surgery. Am I correct in saying that? That's the way I read that as well. It's unusual to make that direct move to the 60-day. Now, you know, you could say, well, they had to do that also to clear a spot on the 40-man roster for the guy they called up from AAA, who we're going to get to, a guy named Tyler Clippard, who you all may have heard of before. So they did need to clear a spot there. So that may be part of the equation. But it's an acknowledgement on their part that he's going to be out for a while, even if somehow he doesn't need the surgery. Best case scenario, he can't even come back until mid-September. And are you even going to do that at that point? Are you going to shut him down for the year? So I would say that this is, if you want to go through the different guys they've had. Okay, so Sean Doolittle had the UCL sprain. They decided we're going to do some rehab here, see how it works out. And he's actually throwing now and may not be that far away from returning. You had Joe Ross, remember last year, shut down with a UCL sprain. They said, let's rest for the rest of the season and try to ramp him up in spring training. And then as we saw during the course of his rehab, it turned out, no, he does need the Tommy John. I think this is a step beyond that, is the sense I get. It's not definitive that he needs a surgery, but the moves that they've already made would suggest to me that he's beyond either of those two. This isn't going to probably be a let's wait out the rest of the year. Let's wait out the off season and then see if he needs it in the spring. This is probably a case of the first examination showed that he probably needs it. We're going to go get a second one just to make sure and confirm that is true. And then if that second examination does confirm the sprain, then yeah, you're probably looking at surgery sometime soon. And it's it's really unfortunate and doesn't sound like that's necessarily an indication of how he was pitching if he was not dealing with any pain as far as we know prior to that. It wasn't that, but it's a career-changing kind of uh, move. And for a team that you know either was hoping they had a long-term answer at the back end of their bullpen, or as we've discussed, maybe as a trade chip come the end of the month, well, neither of those things looks like it's going to be true right now. No. And here's the other thing too with Tanner Rainey. You know, this is his age 29 season. I think sometimes people think of him as like this younger guy, mid-20s. He's going into his 30s, and now he's going to undergo presumably Tommy John surgery. So who knows what this means for his career? Like, we often talk of him as like, you know, he's learning the role of closer. He's already been around for a while. Like, you know, you could argue this is kind of what he is. And he's had this uneven season, and I don't know how you can 
look at him now and feel great about what's to come. Now, we do know that plenty of guys come back from Tommy John, so it's more than possibly comes back and is just fine. Maybe he's better. Some guys come back better. But yeah, I mean, this is a really tough break for him. I mean, whatever you think about him as a pitcher, you still wanted to see him continue to pitch this season and potentially be, as you just indicated, a trade ship for the Nats come the August 2nd trade deadline. I did have to laugh, though, because the Nats, in announcing this, did the thing that they always do. And look, I understand why the Nats do this. They like to focus on the positive when they announce roster transactions. But you know, the Nats put out a press release on Wednesday afternoon. Nationals select the contract of Tyler Clippert. And you see that and you say, wow, Tyler Clippert is finally being summoned from AAA Rochester. Great news. And you feel like, well, that's the headline. Tyler Clippert is back. You know, the clip show is back in full effect. And then you read it. You say, well, what's the corresponding roster move? And then you see Tanner Rainey, right? Use what? 60-day injured list. What? Like, I had to read that like three times before like registered. Like, wait a second. No, the headline here is Rainey, not Clippard, even though basically in any other scenario, Clippard would be the headline. We'd be talking all about this. You know, this really took a lot longer than anyone ever expected. Tyler Clippard being called up to the majors. The Nats in March signed him to a minor league contract. He has pitched well for Rochester. I mean, there were some times when maybe he wasn't outstanding, but here are his numbers. 33 games, 36 in a third innings, ERA at 248, whip of 121, a strikeouts per nine innings of 12.14. Guys who've done much worse have been called up far sooner in this season and seasons past for the Nats. You know, there have been articles written about him and like how he's feeling about all this. You know, it's been a kind of an odd and weird dynamic but nice to see him here. Why do you think, though, this was announced in between the games of the doubleheader? Why wasn't this announced prior to the doubleheader starting on Wednesday? My best guess is that they maybe just got the official results on Rainey's MRI at some point during the game. Maybe he went for the MRI in the morning and then the results came in. Remember, it was a 12.05 game, so kind of early. So maybe they didn't actually know that until after the game had started. Or, you know, there's also the matter of how, and I don't know the details of this, but did Clipper just fly in this morning? And so was he not even here in time to make it to the game? They don't announce the move until the player has actually reported because you never know what might happen if they don't make it to the stadium on time. So probably a combination of those things. Now, he didn't end up pitching, obviously, in the game. He just got his first save for Rochester the other night which is interesting that that's what would precede this. And it is funny, like you said, there have been so many times this year where you knew they're going to call up a reliever, they're going to make a move, and they kept calling up different guys, different guys, different guys. You said, well, what's it going to take to get Tyler Clippard up here? Well, it took, unfortunately, a major injury to their closer for it to happen. But you would think that provided Clippard does well once he's here, between the rainy injury, between potentially trades, happening, that there should be an opportunity for him maybe to pitch the rest of the season here now and and hold down a fairly significant role in the bullpen. And credit to him, he stuck it out. He didn't have to. He could have walked away, could have opted out. He could have tried to catch on with somebody else. But he really wanted to come back and pitch for this organization. As he said in spring training, this place has always felt like home to him. I think he will feel like this would be a nice uh, bookends to his career if it all ends up well for him. And It's nice to see him here, and I'm sure whenever he does enter a game for the first time from the bullpen, he's going to get a nice reaction from the crowd. Yeah, and he deserves it. I mean, you could make the case he is the best reliever for the Nats franchise since the franchise came to D.C. That run that he had in that first stint with the Nats, 2008 through 2014, was nothing short of outstanding. 
2.68 ERA over those seven seasons. I mean, just tremendous work. He was a workhorse. He's still number one in Nats history in regular season appearances by a pitcher. Like, there's a lot to look at and say, like, this is one of the great relievers for the franchise since it came to D.C. It's so funny how things work out, though. The Nats call up Clippard on Wednesday, and then on Thursday night, we'll be starting Anibal Sanchez. Like, the average age of the rebuilding Nats just shot up by like five years, it feels like, with Clippard and Sanchez now being on the major league team. It's uh, not what you would typically want to see from a team trying to build for the future. But as we have noted over and over this year, they don't have enough young pieces at the moment ready for the big league level. And so you have to have stop gaps. We've seen it in the lineup. We've seen it in the rotation. We've seen it in the bullpen. That's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, you hope you get the most out of them. You hope these guys can, you know, perform well and make you feel good about what they used to be and (laughs) bring something to the fans. But these are stopgap solutions. Obviously, they are not part of the long-term plan. They don't have enough pieces to the long-term plan right now, and that is still a challenge for them as they move forward. Yeah. I mean, you could argue it's the number one problem facing the team right now. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Get yourself some Window Nation windows and take advantage of a great offer at 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. Beat the heat with Window Nation. Save $200 off any style new window from Window Nation, plus pay nothing until 2024. Yeah, 2024. Lower your energy bills and raise the value of your home with new energy-efficient windows from Window Nation. Window Nation has installed over a million windows in over 150,000 homes, with 96% of those homes needing no follow-up service. And Window Nation windows are made right here locally in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. If your current windows are sticking or are drafty or are cracked or are hard to open or are locking when they close, you need new windows Get yourself Window Nation windows, 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and ask for the deal. Save $200 off any style new window from Window Nation, plus pay nothing until 2024. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Gray to the plate. 
Swinging a fly ball deep right field toward the corner. Hooking toward the foul pole, and it is gone into the Nationals' bullpen. Fair over the 335 mark. Home run number three for Adam Frazier. It's now 5-0 Seattle. And Gray's allowed three home runs in the first four innings this afternoon. Hopefully someone who does ultimately add significantly to the organizational pitching depth is Josiah Gray. We're not going to go too hard on the details of this doubleheader sweep to Seattle on Wednesday, but this is significant and this was not good. Josiah Gray in game one of the doubleheader, the 6-4 loss, was really bad. He allowed five runs in five innings. Uh, He gave up six hits, three home runs, and three singles. He issued three walks. He did have seven strikeouts, but he over his five innings threw 97 pitches, 57 strikes versus 40 balls. He again struggled in a first inning. Uh, This has been a real issue for Josiah Gray this season. He, in the top of the first, allowed three runs. Josiah Gray now this year has a first inning ERA of 688. He issued two walks, then gave up a one-out three-run homer to Eugenio Suarez on a bomb to left field for a 3-0 Mariners lead, 439 feet per stat cast. He, in the top of the fourth, allowed two more home runs, a leadoff homer by Jesse Winker, then a one-out solo homer by Adam Frazier. You know, Josiah Graymark, it's amazing with him because he at times looks outstanding, but he can look really bad. And you look now at just the last handful of starts for him. What a Jekyll and Hyde run this has been. He had the really good outing in his last outing, the 3-2 win at the Philadelphia Phillies on July 6th, two runs in six innings, 11 strikeouts. But the start prior to that, 6-3 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on July 1st, six runs in five and two-thirds innings. The outing prior to that one, 3-2 loss at the Texas Rangers on June 25th, two runs in seven innings, nine strikeouts. The outing before that, 2-1, 10-inning loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on June 18th, six scoreless innings. Josiah Gray's last five starts consist of three really good starts and two really bad starts. The variance with him is really starting to stand out and I don't know. It's like his good is great, but his bad is awful. And we're continuing to see that with him. And it's about fastball command, really, above all else. You could tell right off the bat in the first inning, he walked the leadoff hitter on four pitches and none of them were close to the zone. It was the exact same thing that was happening where his fastball is flying high and away to left-handed hitters. He walks another batter in the inning ends up then giving up the home run to Suarez, like you said. And this is a mechanics thing. We've brought it up before. He has an issue where his front foot, his left foot that he lands on, he opens it up. That causes his shoulders to fly open, which causes his arm to trail the rest of his body and the pitch's tail away from a left-handed hitter. He knows that they know it. The issue is that it's a difficult thing within a game, I guess, to try to correct something you try to do in between starts. They're definitely going to be working on this all offseason to really try to work on his mechanics and get a straighter line towards the plate. And so what you saw happen in this one, and we saw it from him in that game in Texas, actually, is he tried to abandon the fastball altogether and go breaking balls almost exclusively. And it worked at times. It shows you that the slider and the curveball are really good and can help him get through this. But it's still not enough. He still does give up home runs in the fourth inning, a pair of them. One of them is on a changeup. I think he only threw two of them in the entire game. If you don't have one of your pitches working, as he did not, you better have three other ones to go to. And he did not. He only had two, and they're both breaking balls. It's a tough way to go about it. So this is all part of the learning process. And 
as frustrating as that is, I do think we have to remind ourselves this is his first full big league season. There has been more good than bad, which is encouraging. It's now up to him to learn how to overcome the bad, how to take the mound on a night when you don't have your best stuff and figure out a way to get it done. It's a hard thing for any pitcher to do, certainly a guy in his first big league season. Yeah, and the home runs just continue to plague him. Josiah Gray, over the last two seasons, has totaled 162 and two-thirds major league innings. He is allowed now 40 home runs in those 162 and two-thirds innings. I mean, that is a sky-high home run total to have allowed 40 homers in less than 163 innings pitched at the major league level over these last two years. He does continue to get strikeouts, so that's good. But uh, obviously, the home runs are not, the lack of control not. And like you just outlined, this mechanical issue that uh, continues to pop up something he clearly needs to get corrected. Eric Fetty was an ad starting pitcher in the 2-1 loss to the Mariners in game two of the doubleheader. He was coming off a really bad outing, as you may recall, that 12-2 loss at the Atlanta Braves this past Friday night. Fetty in that game, eight runs in three innings. He was a lot better on Wednesday evening. He was actually quite good over the first five innings of his outing. He then fell apart in the sixth. He was charged with two runs in that inning. And so for the outing, he gave up two runs in five and a third innings. That top of the sixth was quite bad. He gave up a home run, a single, two walks, and a wild pitch. Then Davey Martinez tells you guys after the game, (laughs) I don't know how else to say this, Fetty threw up during the game. Threw up, I guess, right before the sixth inning or shortly before the sixth inning. Yeah, he um, he threw up, you know, and then, uh, but he said he felt fine after that. He went out there and then uh, he just he, he couldn't find the strike zone. So A, once again, throw up comes up this season with the Nats, first with Lucius Fox, now with Eric Fetty. But is that why he struggled in the six or not really? So that's only part of the story. We got a little more of the gory details from Eric Fetty. You remember when the trainer and Davey came out to the mound, I believe it was in the fifth inning and they gave him some Gatorade. That's when it happened. And the reason you didn't see anything is because Fetty said he threw up in his mouth and then swallowed it back down and called for the trainer and they gave him some Gatorade to wash it down. So no, I don't think it directly impacted that last inning for him. Now, maybe he's fatigued at that point. It was a very hot and muggy and long day at the ballpark and it probably caught up with him. But Fetty, you know, in a nice little self-deprecating moment afterwards, was glad that he did not have his Lucius Fox moment, that he managed to keep it inside of him. And as he termed it, made sure that he didn't make it rain. So, uh, was <laughs> sorry, folks. It's game 90 of a long season, and this is what we're at now. Kind of a rough uh, moment there for Eric Fetty, but he got through it, <laughs> and he stayed in the game, came back. But, yeah, he was not the same pitcher in the six, and that was disappointing because he was so efficient up to that point. 61 pitches through five innings. That's always been his issue, and it should have been a lot fewer than that if not for a should have been strike three call that would have got him out of the second inning that – you saw as much a reaction from a pitcher towards an umpire as you'll ever see without getting ejected. And Fetty's throws his arms out to the side as the Nationals were walking off the field. No call is made. It's ball four. Well, I think even Upton stood there wondering well, whether it was going to be strike three. And Fetty said afterwards that like he went up to John Bacon, the umpire, the next inning and said, hey, I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't have done that. And he was like, hey, it's all good. You know, we're professionals here. So that says to me that John Bacon knew how bad of a call it was. You know, credit to them that they just let it go. But he should have been out of the second inning a lot earlier, and the pitch count would have been even lower than it was. Yeah. uh, If you look at the identifications of the pitches in that plate appearance, there were a few calls uh, that were off 
in that plate appearance. Yeah, there definitely is some kind of a metaphor here for what Fetty did in his mouth and then swallowed in this Nat season. I'll let everyone listening sort of figure that out. But yeah, that is uh, that is pretty nasty <laughs> what, what old Eric Fetty ended up doing on Wednesday. Well, there were some bright spots for the Nats in this doubleheader. Juan Soto is on fire right now. A tremendous home run for Juan Soto into the second deck, landing in section 240. And you talk about being ready for a home run derby. Is anyone on the planet more ready for a home run derby right now than Juan Soto? He homered two more times on Wednesday. He homered in the ninth inning of each game. Uh, Soto in game one had a three-run homer and three walks. He went one for two with a three-run homer and three walks. Soto in game two only had one hit in the game, one for four, but the one was a solo homer. The three-run homer in game one came in the bottom of the ninth, a two-out first pitch, opposite field, three-run bomb to left center to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-4. And then the homer in game two of the doubleheader, he in a one-run ninth smashed a leadoff homer to the second deck in right field to cut the Nats' deficit to 2-1, 444 feet per stat cast. Interesting, Davey Martinez had Soto batting in the three spot in this game as opposed to the usual number two spot. We continue to see Davey tinker with the lineups. We did see Luis Garcia batting in the leadoff spot in game one. That was nice, although Cesar Hernandez was back in the leadoff spot for game two. But also with Soto in this doubleheader was another base running blunder. Crawford runs right at him. He chases him toward third, tries to dive for the tag, and Soto is out, and the Nationals run themselves right out of the inning. So even with an extreme positive for the Nats on Wednesday, you have also a negative. Bottom of the seventh in game one, Soto draws a two-out four-pitch walk, but he then gets tagged out in a rundown between third base and home plate for the third out. Uh, This happened on a Nelson Cruz two-out opposite field double to right field it was kind of a weird double. The ball ricocheted, wound up in like kind of shallow right field territory. But Soto got caught up in a rundown and got tagged out. And by the way, also on the play was Nelson Cruz nearly getting tagged out in stretching the hit into a double. So more bad base running and more bad base running from Soto. We have seen him be guilty of this way too often this season. He has. It's, again, yet another example of just trying to make too many things happen for a team that has struggled so much to score runs. And, you know, I asked him afterwards about the home run and if he could take solace in that, even though the team had lost. And he said, At the end of the day, it feels more terrible when I hit the ball because the things that happen in the bases and anything, who can see how close the game will be. But I make a good count out of just try to keep grinding and try to keep doing my thing. Because he knew that that base running mistake earlier changed the whole complexion of the game. And if not for that, maybe that home run of the ninth takes on an entirely different meaning. So he was still feeling it and he brought it up himself, the base running mistake. He made no excuses for it. There really was no good reason for it. He wasn't being waved around by Gary DiSarcina. Nothing like that. He thought that maybe he'd catch them sleeping. He thought that maybe the tag was going to be held on uh, Nelson Cruz that, you know, it was going to be a close play. And so he'd catch him napping and maybe score the run before they caught on what was going on. And instead, he never even had much of a chance at all. These things are killing them. You also had Luis Garcia get caught stealing in the second game right before Lane Thomas would hit a double down the line. They are trying too hard to make things happen. This is what happens when you're scoring two runs a night on average, which is what they're doing right now. They've got to, as hard as it is to, it's easy to say hard to do, but they've just got to relax 
trust themselves and start hitting the ball in the air, which they're not doing outside of Soto. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say this not to defend what Soto did, but I'm not a fan of like, well, the home run in the ninth would have meant something different because we don't know if he would have hit the home run. You know, if he scores in that inning prior to the ninth, maybe the pitch selection against him in the ninth is different. You know, so it's like you can't just assume that everything would have played out exactly the same. But I get the point that he's making. I do want to acknowledge, though, I mean, he is really hot right now. And, you know, we've harped on him not having a Juan Soto caliber season. By the time we get to the All-Star game, his numbers may be right where, where you want him to be. He has hit four home runs over his last five games. His OPS for the season was at 796 through June 22nd. It's now at 892. He, in a span of less than a month, has elevated his OPS for the season by nearly 100 points. That's not easy to do when you're already past the midway mark of the year. And yet Soto's doing that. So it may be that he winds up being the most deserving Nationals player of an All-Star spot this year by the time we get to the All-Star game. We'll see. But great to see him hitting like this. He's going the opposite way a lot, which is really encouraging too. But the base running blunders have got to stop. Lane Thomas had a good doubleheader, two hits in game one, two hits in a walk in game two. So I want to mention that. And then the Nats bullpen. I mean, it's all of the non-A guys, I guess you have to say, but the bullpen continues to be pretty good here lately. And in this doubleheader on Wednesday, you in game one had three Nats relievers combining for one run in four innings. The returning Hunter Harvey, who the Nats on Sunday morning reinstated from the 60-day injured list. Mason Thompson, who continues to look really good since he returned from injury. And Corey Abbott, who was the 27th man designated by the Nats for the doubleheader. He did give up a run, uh, one run in two innings, but Abbott in a perfect top of the eighth, three swinging strikeouts of the Mariners numbers, three through five batters, Carlos Santana, Eugenio Suarez, and Jesse Winker. And then in game two of the doubleheader, four Nats relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Steve Ciszek, Andres Machado, Jordan Weems, and Erasmo Ramirez. Not exactly household names, but I think it's worth saying, especially now with Tanner Rainey out, a lot of these guys look really good here lately. If nothing else, they're giving the team a chance. So whether it's the starter having a good game like Fetty did, and it's a low-scoring tight game, or in the case of the opener where Josiah Gray struggles, at least by posting these zeros after that, you're giving your lineup an opportunity to come back. Really, right now, to me, the issue with this team is they're not hitting. They're not scoring runs at all. You can't put a whole lot of blame on the pitching staff. They're at least giving them a chance. So I do like what a lot of these guys out of the bullpen have done. You'd like to start seeing it in some higher leverage spots, which there just aren't very many because they trail every single game. But that's a nice sign. And I'll be curious to see with Rainey out now. Davey said probably Finnegan gets most of the save opportunities. But I think you'll see some other guys maybe pitching seventh, eighth inning in some high leverage spots. So maybe an opportunity to see what any of them can do. Because in a few of these cases, these are guys who may actually have a future with the team. And now's the time, if ever there was one, to find out who uh, has the goods and who doesn't. Yeah, I mean, give Jordan Weems a chance to close out a game and just see what it looks like. With the offense, this is not new, but it really does drive you nuts. The frequency with which the Nats are hitting into double plays just drives you bonkers watching these games. And of course, it's not just like the lesser batters who do this, right? Josh Bell has hit into a million double plays this year. Soto has hit into more of his uh, fair share of double plays. Nelson Cruz as well. You know, it's not just one thing with the offense, but if you just reduced the number of double plays, I feel like the offensive production would tick up for this team. Way too many double plays, especially lately, it feels like, with this team. 
So they have 91 of them now in 90 games this year, tops in the majors, and it's not even close. Next on the list are the Rockies at 76. So that's 15 more double plays than anybody else. And you look at the leaderboard across the majors, it is littered with nationals. Josh Bell leads the league now with 19 of them. Michael Franco is next at 14. Nelson Cruz is fifth with 12. And Juan Soto, I believe, has 10, tied for 13th. So those are your big hitters. Now, Josh Bell's done a good job in the bigger picture this year. I don't want to, you know, beat on him too much here. But for whatever reason, in these spots, they're pitching him down in the zone and he has not been able to elevate. There were two of them in the nightcap of the doubleheader. These are rally killers. And on a team that is not hitting home runs, as we've talked about, your only chance to get rallies going is multiple hits, singles and doubles. When you make two outs on one swing of the bat, you are just killing these rallies. And it feels like as bad as it seems here lately, what they're doing, a lot of these games, they are one or two clutch hits away. Turn a double play into an RBI single. It feels like that could have turned this completely around. and We'd have be having a very different conversation right now about the team. Yeah, I mean, you saw in game two in the latter inning, Cesar Hernandez draw a pair of one-out walks, and each time he got eradicated via a double play. They're coming way too often this season, and uh, yeah, the Nats can ill afford something like that. That's part of why, too, striking out is no longer viewed as like the mortal sin as it used to be. Double plays are the mortal sin. Striking out is not good, but it's better than a double play. One out is uh, better than two outs if you have to make an out. Uh, in a plate appearance. All right, one more item here. So uh, we did not do a show for Tuesday because the Nats uh, did not play on Monday, but we had Kate Cavalli pitching on Tuesday night. 5-2 home win for AAA Rochester over the Omaha Storm Chasers. There's an interesting name. And he looked good. One run, which was unearned in three and two-thirds innings. He had six strikeouts versus no walks, but he left the game with a finger issue. And Cavalli didn't look quite right on that pitch. And Taylor Gushu noticed it. And out to the mound goes Wings manager Matthew LeCroy, along with the training staff and Red Wing pitching coach Rafael Chavez. The AAA Rochester manager Matt LeCroy said after the game, quote, he, as in Cavalli, had a little thing on his finger. It wasn't really a blister. It was a little small piece of skin that got pulled off of his finger. He wanted to keep going, but we thought it would be best not to. I think we got it at the right time, so I don't think it's going to be an issue. And quote. Now, the video of this was scary because Cavalli throws a pitch and he does the thing that pitchers do when they're hurt of you signal, hey, something's wrong. And you're like, oh boy, what is this now? That's like the last thing the Nats need. But as far as we know, this was just a skin on finger thing and nothing more than that with Cavalli. Is that correct? Yeah, that is the sense that I have at this point. It does not appear to have been anything serious. Like you, you see the original video, and that's the kind of motion you make when you felt something in your elbow pop. <laughs> so thankfully, it's nothing like that. And you could see then in the rest of the video how they immediately were looking at his hand and at his finger. And so I thought maybe it was a blister situation. But as you heard the quote from Matt LeCroy, it was not that. Still to be determined is if there's any chance he would pitch in the futures game on Saturday like he's supposed to. My hunch would be they will hold him out of that just for precautionary reasons, if nothing else. But boy, it's funny. We keep thinking to ourselves, okay, he's pitching so well. And he was pitching well up to that point again. 
we're saying, okay, he might be one start away from making his major league debut. And then something comes up that seems to delay that. And so I would imagine even if this is not anything that serious, they're certainly going to want him to make another start at some point in the minors before we see him. So it could push that date back even further than we thought. But assuming this is no big deal, and I don't get the sense they believe it is, the good news is, is that Kate Cavalli has been pitching pretty well for a while now and is making his case to be called up. And I do think we are getting closer to that day when it happens. Probably not going to happen you know, immediately, but maybe coming out of the all-star break here, we hopefully will be seeing him pitch in the big leagues at last. That would be a nice shot in the arm uh, if you're a Nats fan and give you something to look forward to after the All-Star break. Well, the Nats have one series before the All-Star break. It's a four-game series against, oh, look, the Atlanta Braves uh, at Nationals Park Thursday through Sunday. We, of course, recall what happened last weekend for the Nats at the Braves. Three-game sweep. We'll see what goes down over these four days. As the Nats now, remember, are going to be playing six games over five days prior to the All-Star break. Uh, Anibal Sanchez, like we said, will be starting on Thursday night, game one. And I guess what the Sunday game is to be determined in terms of how the Nats will handle that. But I guess because you're going into the All-Star break, you can piecemeal it together, right? Maybe do a bullpen game. I guess Josh Rogers might be an option for Sunday too, right? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways they could go with this. doesn't have to be Sunday. It could be any game during the series, and they have not yet announced the full rotation plan other than Annabelle pitching on Thursday. So they have some options there. Josh Rogers, who did finally make another rehab start, and he's up to like 85 pitches, so that would seem to be an option for them. I would guess they may wait and see how do these first game or two go. Do they use a lot of bullpen? Can they afford to make it all the way to Sunday? Uh, And by then, maybe there is a starter who could come back and pitch, you know, a couple of innings out of the bullpen, something like that. So they have some ways to go about it here. But boy, the last thing this team needs right now is a four-game series with the Braves. Because we saw (laughs) the last couple of times they've played them, what that looks like. Even against the lesser competition, they're having trouble scoring runs. Against those kind of teams like the Braves, they're not just having trouble scoring runs, but they're having trouble preventing the other team from scoring runs. And you hope that it won't be the same story. But these next four days could get pretty ugly, and it could be a really rough final week heading into the All-Star break. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shover's NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.com. Dot square dot site. That's Nats Chat Podcast dot square dot site. Uh, don't forget if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the podcast a five star rating if you haven't yet done that. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a brief one or two sentence review of the podcast saying how much that you like the podcast. Uh, the ratings and the reviews help us out a lot, and we appreciate them very much. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Giants trying to find some late offense. Last of the eighth, top of the order as they are finally into the Washington bullpen. Doug Fister was splendid today. Seven shutout innings as he yields to the tough right-hander, Tyler Clippard. And Tyler Clippard, what a great fastball changeup combination. Start him off with a changeup. He's looking to step on the gas and take it off in the way that he tries to get hitters out. Blanco lines softly to first, one away.